0: we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for this season that we celebrate. We pray this morning that as we open your word, that you would lead and guide us in all things. You promise that you give us the Holy Spirit to teach us and to show us and to lead us in all truth. And so we ask that you do that this morning. We pray that you would uh, take the truth of your word, the eternal truth of your word, and apply it to our hearts in our minds. We pray that as we open your word, that all that is said today would be pleasing and honoring to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I love this time of year. I love that when we get uh, to Christmas and the excitement of it, and uh, it's just a a wonderful time. Uh, It's particularly fun when you have small children in the house, as, as I do right now, having little boys in the house makes it even more fun. I was thinking about when I was a kid and, and preparing, getting ready for Christmas. I remember at school making uh, chains out of construction paper, if you ever did that, and that would have the days to Christmas and you'd hang it up in your classroom and you'd take one home and I'd hang it up in my room. And I remember taking one off every day as you get closer to Christmas and the excitement and the anticipation of that. Uh, my son, Jed, who's eight, uh, told me the other day, I put an app on your phone that counts down the days to Christmas. <laughs> and I saw it how different that is in 2015. There's no, there's no more construction chain. Uh, we put together the chain to count down the days, but he had to put an app on there so he could tell me the minutes and seconds too. He could give me all of it. And so, uh, it's changed, but the same heart is there, the anticipation and the excitement over it and being excited about getting to Christmas. There's a lot of things, especially as small children that we just get really excited about. Uh, birthdays are a big one in our house. Uh, one of the boys has a birthday And as soon as theirs is done, then the next one's going, well, my birthday's next. And it doesn't matter if it's three or six months off. It's mine's next. And they start to get excited about it. When we get older, that starts to wane. And we just go, yeah, it's it's just another year. (laughs) I'm just older now. Uh, But as a child, that's a big deal. It's the same with Christmas. We get really excited about it, the anticipation that comes with it. And so we started really last week, even though we were still in Hebrews, Last week was the first week of Advent. This is the second week as we start to move towards Christmas. Maybe your tradition, wherever you came from, maybe you didn't grow up calling it that or talking about Advent. Advent just means arrival or coming. We celebrate the coming of Jesus, his first coming and what that means for us at Christmas. And so this whole season is built around the idea of anticipation, of being excited about celebrating who God is and what he's done and how he's entered into history And the sad truth is sometimes when we get to the season and all that goes with it, we can be so busy with other things that that gets kind of pushed to the back. Or we go, man, I I do and I'm faithful and I come to the body and I come here and I hear, but I've heard the story so many times. And it can start to become kind of ho-hum in the way we think about it. But that should never be. This is a truth that's so profound and so large that should never be the case. There should always be great Anticipation when we talk about these things. And so, for the next three weeks, we're really just going to do a, a series of a few sermons just really to help uh, hopefully uh, ramp up our anticipation, the excitement about Christmas and what that means. And so, today we're going to do that, but I want to just focus on how big God's promises are, the way He's working. Uh, we're going to go back to the Old Testament in Second Samuel. Chapter Seven, and look at this promise that God gives David some a thousand years before Jesus would come, and so I want us just to think about that and let that settle on us—a thousand years in the making, the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And so we're going to look at this passage in Second Samuel Chapter Seven that we read just a second ago, and just simply ask, what is the promise that God gives to David? He gives him a specific promise. But then I want us to think about the ways that the people throughout history, and maybe even us today, we miss the hugeness of the promise that God's made. The, the confusion that comes with it. And we'll talk about some of the ways they've done that down through time as we, as we work our way through it. And then lastly, I want us to think about uh, the fulfillment, the majesty of it. And so as we do that, kind of set over and above all of this as we go, is, is the simple truth for all of us is a lot of times... We miss the bigness of what God's doing because we put God in a box. We begin to think too small. We see or we hear things or we interpret things in certain ways and then we try to bring it down in the way that we can do it or the way that we can understand it and we make it too small. And I think you're going to see that when we talk about the confusion that comes with the promise God gives. A lot of times they're missing it and they're not quite seeing it and it's because they're trying to put God in a box. They're trying to make Him too small. And So I want you just to be thinking about that as we walk through Maybe there's ways in our own lives today that we're doing that. We're making God too small. We're trying to put Him in a box and something that we can handle instead of seeing how big His promises are. And so let's just start with a promise that's there, Second Samuel chapter 7. As we jump in here, let me just set the scene for you. You know, for the last several months, if you've been here, we've been in the book of Hebrews. So we've been in Hebrews, which is most likely written around the 60s A.D., After Jesus explaining how he's fulfilled everything. Now we're jumping back to 2 Samuel. And this is written a thousand years before Christ. And so when we we look at the big picture of the Bible and we kind of put that together. We have that God made this promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation and a people. And I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to do all these things. And then we start to follow that all the way through the Bible. As we get to 2 Samuel where we are in that Uh, unfolding of god's plan is god did give them the land under joshua he took them into the land uh, the land that he promised to abraham they didn't do it exactly how god told them and it caused all kinds of problems and you get those problems in the book of judges judges is seven cycles of sinful people that are ignoring god and then he rescues them over and over as he raises up faithful judges to bring them back military leaders And you get to the end of those cycles at the end of Judges and we get into 1 Samuel and God has Samuel come and the people come to Samuel and they say, we need a king to be like the other nations. And God's uh, upset at this. He's heartbroken. He says, they've rejected me as their king and they want to be like the other nations. And he says, "Okay, I'm going to work with this. I'm going to give them a king and I'm going to do this. And so he does. And so what happens from about a thousand years before Jesus, there's three kings that unites all of Israel under one king. It's what we call the United Kingdom. And so Saul and then David and then Solomon rule over Israel for this period. And it's the time that's known as the United Kingdom. And when we read in 2 Samuel 7, we're right in the middle of that. David is on the throne. They've taken the land. It's settled. Uh, they're, They're starting to get everything kind of set up the way... God's called them to be, and they're they're seeking to be a light in the world and show what true worship looks like. And that's right where we are. So I tell you that just real quickly, real briefly, so we settle where we are when we open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so let's look at this picture. Look at the promise that God gives to David. And so start there in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And so we read it just a second ago, but the context is David's going, I want to build a temple for God, an actual permanent structure. And God goes, yeah, yeah, yeah you're not going to do that right now. But I do have this promise that I want to tell you. You're going to have a son who I'm going to raise up and he's going to be king after you. If you know the rest of the Bible, the promise God's giving him is to David's son, Solomon. Solomon will come after and he will do these things. And so he starts to talk about that picture. And he says then in verse 13, he will build a house for my name. And so God says to David, that's great. I understand what you want to do, but I'm going to raise up a son after you and he's going to be the one that builds the temple. And that comes to fruition under Solomon. We see that in scripture. If you know the story and that's true and that happens. But then look at what happens at the second part of verse 13. He says he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so all of a sudden, there's this kind of peculiar thing that happens in there. He starts to talk about your son and what he's going to do. And I'm going to bless him and he's going to build this temple. And then he says, and then I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. I'm going to establish eternal kingdom through your line, David. And so people are going to in the moment and what he's getting, he's not going to be completely seeing this, but he drops that in there in verse 13, verse 14 and 15 goes back to Solomon and it talks about he's going to make some mistakes I will discipline him, but I'm going to continue to love him. I'm not going to remove from him I'm going to allow him to continue. And so he gives this promise to David. But then look at what he says again in verses 16 and 17. And this is, it goes to the heart of the promise that God gives to David. It's what we call the Davidic covenant. The promise that God gives to his people through David. And so listen to what he says. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God gives this word to Nathan and he comes and he tells David and he says, I'm going to establish you forever. He says it three different times in just those few verses. He's going to give him a kingdom that's forever. And so I want you to think about the picture that God's giving, the promises he's giving to David. Oftentimes in Old Testament prophecy, we see a near and a far prophecy kind of collapse together all into one, right? So he tells them, I'm going to do this thing through your son and he's going to build a house for me and he's going to make some mistakes and there's going to be some issues, but I'm going to establish your kingdom forever an eternal promise. And so he kind of puts the two together. And so you can start to see the picture that's going on here of maybe how exactly this is going to work. And this is where the issues are going to come. When God makes eternal, huge promises, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever, what we will often do in our sinful minds is how are we going to do that? How are we going to make that work? How are we going to fit this in a box that we can now handle? And so what you see fulfilled after this is they're trying to figure out what's he doing? God just made this promise that he's going to establish it forever. The Davidic covenant, there's going to be this kingdom and the throne will be established for eternity. And so that takes me to the second part of the confusion, how we miss that. When we see it start to unfold and what it looks like, Solomon does follow David. If you know the Old Testament, Solomon does come after he becomes the king. He has great wealth. He has great wisdom. I had a professor who used to say, you can remember Solomon by the three W's. See the three and then the W's makes you remember it. But he had great wealth. He had great wisdom and lots and lots of women. He ended up with tons and tons of wives. This is what they would do in their day. When they conquered lands, you would take a wife from that land, bring them into your palace, and it would, it would assure that they're now not going to come after you. Right? Because now you're the daughter of the king that you just conquered is now living with you, so he's not going to want to come after you. And so what happened is Solomon ends with thousands of wives. And so what happens is the, the promise that you see The natural assumption would be as God gives this promise to David, I'm going to unfold this and through your son, there's going to be a succession and a dynasty and you guys are going to rule forever. That's the way our human mind often works. But as you read through the Old Testament, what happens is from two generations later, because of Solomon's indiscretions, because of the way he does things, because he invites tons and tons of women into his home that have all different religions, all different things. Very quickly, he's out of sorts. And you see it from the very next generation after Solomon. That united kingdom that went on for three kings is ripped in two, and suddenly it's the divided kingdom. There's a north and a south. There's people fighting over who's going to be king, and so they split. And so you start to go, well, wait a second. He just promised this eternal covenant, this eternal promise. And already within two generations, the nation split. If you read on down through kings... What you get is within 400 years, the north and the south are both destroyed. They no longer exist. Assyria comes in and Babylon comes in and wipes them out. And so you go, you look at this whole picture and you go, what in the world was going on? How's this going to work? He just said, your son's going to be on the throne and I'm establishing it forever. Forever. And I think the first way they're missing it is we start to think of it too small and we think we're going to do it through a succession and a bunch of kings and we're going to do it that way. But God's working in a much bigger way than that. And so there's there's a real clear application, though, for all of us when we hit to that point. There's this forever element. I'm going to establish the throne forever, which he's going to do. But it's not quite the way they thought. There was an element of this covenant or this promise that was two sided. That's the way God often works. There's certain things that he says, you respond to me in obedience and I will walk with you in this. And if you disobey, then there will be consequences. That's exactly what happens with Solomon and his sons following him. God's plans are not going to be thwarted or undone, but there are consequences for our actions. I want you to think about that in our own lives. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is certain because it's Jesus' work and not ours. That's the heart of the gospel. We say, Amen, that is wonderful. We are held secure by what Jesus does. But as we walk out our faith, there's still consequences when we disobey. It doesn't thwart God's plans. He says, I'm going to finish the work that I began in you. I'm going to bring it to fruition. But that doesn't mean it may be harder when we walk in disobedience. And you see this exact same thing repeated over and over in the nation Israel. You see it with Solomon and his sons following. And so everything starts to seem to unravel. The disobedience that comes from it, uh, the disobedience of Solomon in leading his family well, gets passed down to his sons and it causes all kinds of problems. And so you have this promise, but it seems to be frustrated right from the beginning. Within two generations, you can't even recognize... What's happening? What's going on? God promised this thing and now it already seems like it's completely out of sorts. And so the problem that begins to establish, the problem that becomes to uh, God begins to clarify for us as we read through the Bible is that his eternal kingdom will never be able to be established by sinful men. And you start to see that unfold in the Old Testament, which, by the way, there's another real clear application there. We're about to run up to an election in the next year. And when these cycles come, oftentimes we put our hope in a person. This guy is going to fix it and he'll make things right. And then no matter who gets elected, everybody's really upset and there's still all these problems. Just would say to you, your hope needs to be in the one that can fix everything. And that's Jesus and no one else. That doesn't mean you shouldn't vote or be involved or any of those kind of things. But we should hold lightly that our hope is not in a man. It's not in a president, it's not an elected official, it's in our King Jesus. And so you see that here happening. They were wanting to think, yes, we're going to keep this king and we're going to have this kingdom, it'll be great, and then it falls apart. And so God's even teaching through them asking for a king. He says, fine, I'll give you a king. And I'm going to show you how this king can't fully do it. And so what happens during the divided kingdom, right? Things rip apart two kingdoms, it's all messed up. They start to be taken out. God sends prophets during that time and they begin to speak. They begin to speak God's word and speak words of life into the people and they start to say things like Jeremiah and Jeremiah 23. In the divided kingdom, as things are falling apart, Jeremiah shows up and behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up For David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And Jeremiah starts to speak truth of what God tells him to speak. And he says, yes, a king is coming. I am going to establish my throne, but it's not the way you thought it was. Or in Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah will say for unto us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And you see what the prophets begin to say. He makes this promise to David some thousand years before Jeremiah and Isaiah will come hundreds of years later, still hundreds of years before Jesus will come. And they'll start to say, yes, there is going to be a king and there is going to be a kingdom and there is going to be a throne, but it's going to be God himself that enters the story to do it. It's not going to be just an earthly king. It's not going to be just a guy. It's not going to be a dynasty of succession of kings that rules with an iron fist, but someone coming that is bigger than that. And so, as the story unfolds and you begin to see it, the confusion, the fuzziness of how this is going to work starts to come into clear focus over time. You get all the way down to the Gospels, and an angel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1, and listen to what he says Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And you start to suddenly see it coming into focus. The promise of an eternal uh, kingdom, an eternal throne established forever is going to be brought to fulfillment in this man, Jesus, who is going to be God, Emmanuel, God with us is going to step in and do what no earthly king could ever do. And so God showed and worked even through the people's rebellion of wanting an earthly king. He said, OK, I'll give them a king and I'm going to show them what that's like. And in doing that, I'm going to teach them that they need something more than just an earthly king. They need the true king. And so God's graciousness is all the way through that, through the whole part, the whole time. And so we see Jesus Come, and He is the promise of a thousand years in the making. But as our habit is as people, they were no different than we are. They still want to put God in a box. They still want to make it their way. Exactly what we do all the time. And so Jesus steps in, and He comes, and He begins His ministry, and He says over and over, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And people start to go, Oh, yeah. okay. maybe this is it. This is the guy. This is the promise of David. This is the one. And people start to get excited. And he heals people. And he teaches like no one's ever taught before. And he does all these things. And they're so excited. There's our king. He's here. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is walking along with his disciples. And he goes, hey, guys, by the way, I'm going to die. Right? You know that story? What Peter says immediately when he says it? May it never be. That's not going to happen. You're going to be on your king forever. You're going to be on the throne forever. You're going to be the kingdom forever because that's the promise. You're not dying. And you think about the conception they had. I would have been no different. It's so easy to be hard on Peter, but I would have been Peter. I would have been the one going, uh, excuse me, Jesus, let me just point you to Second Samuel chapter 7. Right? <laughs> In my arrogance and in my own, I'm going to bring it down to this and I'm now going to tell you, no, 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 no. You're going to be on the throne forever. This is the way this works. And what starts to happen and what we start to see, what we often do is we want to put God in the box. This is the way it's going to work, Jesus. You're going to overthrow governments. We're going to put you on your throne. We're going to rule with you. Everything will be great. And he goes, yeah, that's not the way this is happening. It's not going to work like that. The problem Peter had, the disciples, all the people around, they're all putting God in a box of thinking far too small. And he says, that's not the way it's going to work. We're not going to overthrow governments. We're not going to do it like that. And so we start to think about what's the majesty and the bigness, how huge this promise is that Jesus came to fulfill. He says, I'm going to die. This is the way I'm going to do it. He says, I'm going to lay down my life on your behalf. I'm going to do what you could never do for you. I'm going to live a perfect life in every way. I'm going to honor God with everything I say and do with my words, and my actions, my deeds, everywhere I go. And then I'm going to take your sin on myself and I'm going to give you my perfect righteousness. Right? Isn't that what Jeremiah said? His name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. I'm going to do what you can't do for you. And so when they say, we're going to make you king... We're going to take this little plot of land in the Middle East and we're going to make you king. Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You're thinking far too small. I came to be king over the entire cosmos. I came to redeem all of creation. I came to take your sin and give you what you can never do for you and far greater than anything you ever could imagine. And he says, I will willingly and gladly lay my life down for you. That was always the plan. That was always the plan. Make no mistake, that's always what Jesus came to do. The shadow of the cross is always there over the manger from the very beginning. He was always coming to be the king over all creation. And so you see that begin to unfold. Just like they do all the way throughout the story. They try to take God and put him in a little box. This is the way it's going to work, right? It's going to be through David's family and we'll have, oh wait, that doesn't work. Okay, well, plan B. He'll come and then we'll overthrow governments. And he goes, no, 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 that's not the way it's going to work. And we're constantly wanting to limit what God can do through our power and our conception. And this is the way it will work. And he's constantly reassessing that, re-showing us what that looks like. And so I want you just to think, I said at the very beginning, how we get to Christmas. And our anticipation is really directly proportional to how excited we are about what's coming. Is that not true? That's why kids get so excited at Christmas. Think about it. You're broke. You have no money. You have no way to get anything. And you now get to make a list. And people are going to give it to you. That's pretty exciting as a kid, right? (laughs) Is that not the gospel? That's that's us. The things we could never do. God says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to live this perfect life. I'm going to lavish upon you my righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And he comes and does what we could never do for us. And so when we start to think about the coming king at Christmas, Jesus entering in, coming to take my place, to restore his kingdom, to reclaim his people, is it possible to anticipate that too much? Does that ever get old? There we go. I've heard it. The God of the universe is coming down to do what we could never do for us, to reclaim His creation, to take His rightful place on His throne and establish His kingdom forever. There we go, ah, I've heard it. But the truth is it's the greatest truth there is in the world. And yet we like to limit God and bring it down. And so I want us just to think for just a second as we close, as we think about uh, Christmas and celebrating it. We think about the season of Advent And how we go about this. I want you just to think maybe the different ways. And ask God. Ask Him to show you. To put this in your heart. It's going to be different for each person. And to lead you into all truth. What are the ways that we're limiting God? What are the ways that we're putting God in a box? I think sometimes some of the most obvious ways. Are we make this season about gifts. Or getting things. Or busyness. Or shopping, how sad is that that we would come to this season and we would so limit it to make it about those things? And so begin to ask God what that would look like. Maybe with your with your uh, own family. How do you do that with your children or your grandchildren? How do you begin to talk of these things? Are we settling with our own family and our own kids with just making this about a fun time of getting gifts? Or are we teaching and leading and guiding them that the King of the universe has come? It makes no sense when you really start to think about it. What we will settle for, just even in the way we celebrate Christmas. Or maybe you think right now, holidays are really difficult. And I know for some of us, holidays are really, really hard. And they're difficult times and there's struggles that come with it. And sometimes when we face struggles, we say things like, no good could come from this. You ever said that? No good could come from this. I want you to think about how big God is and how big his promises are and the way he's been working. Think about the God that made this promise some 3,000 years ago to David I'm going to establish my kingdom forever. And we have the audacity to say, I don't think anything good can come from this. God's working in ways that we cannot fathom. Even in the midst of your heartache and your brokenness and your frustration right now, is that the very center of this is that God loves you so much that He came and entered in and would willingly lay down His life for you. And so start to think of those areas that we're putting God in a box. Let me give you one last one before we end. But maybe you say, Yes, I believe in Christ. I know He's my Savior. I know He's done this. I want to celebrate this. But I don't know how I can be used. I think sometimes people go, yeah, yeah, but I don't have this gift or I don't have this gift, and yes I'm a believer, and yes I want to serve God, yes I want to glorify him, but I just I, I can't do this or I can't do that. And I want you to think about just the whole picture, the whole story that's here. That the God of the universe came to redeem you. He came to lay down his life for you, and he loves you that much. And then he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and I'm going to come and I'm going to inhabit you and I'm going to give you specific gifts to do things in specific ways to glorify me. And I'm going to use you in mighty ways. And how often in our own, uh, just whatever the baggage we deal with, whatever the things that we think about, whatever the the problems that we have in our own self-image or self-worth and we go, oh, he couldn't use me. Think about what you're saying. The God of the universe now dwells inside of you through the Holy Spirit. And he's gifted you in specific ways. And we want to put him in a little box and go, I can't do that. What? Makes no sense. I want you to hear that today. God has uniquely gifted you. If you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus, he's given you specific gifts to serve and care for other people. And he wants to use you in ways that you cannot even fathom. And yet we want to put God in this little box. Oh, that won't work. Really? I think it will. I think he can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Pretty sure that's in the Bible. It is. It's Ephesians 3 if you're wondering. But that's where it says that. He can do abundantly more than all that we ask. Or think. And so as we move into this holiday season and we start to think about the anticipation of Jesus coming and what that means for us, I just ask that you would prayerfully consider. Ask God, what are the areas that you are putting him in a box? Ask him to expand your vision for what he wants, not just for your life, but to use you for his kingdom and his purposes, how he wants to use you to glorify him, the wonderful gift that he's given us that we can now do that. What a beautiful, beautiful gift. What a beautiful way to celebrate this holiday season. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of your scripture. I thank you for the way it holds together. I thank you we see these promises that you wrote down thousands of years ago that show us so clearly the way you are working. I thank you for the way they find their fulfillment in Jesus. We thank you that you are our righteousness through what you've done in Christ, that we can rest in that. I pray that this season that you would just implant in our hearts a new love for you, a new excitement. I pray that you would expand our vision of the ways that we can serve and love one another for your honor and your glory. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.